Hello and welcome to Seen Them Given, the show about the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, Newcastle are left seeing red when penalty kicks and cards aren't forthcoming at Stamford Bridge. What does a goalkeeper have to do to get sent off? And what are the rules about stadium replays and what a stadium announcer can say about them? I'm Mike McCarthy, football broadcaster and journalist who listened to Fulham boss Marco Silva complaining about the length of the grass at Oakwell this weekend. With me, a man who I imagine would quite gladly have strode around a playing surface. So well appointed is the former FIFA referee and ex-head of the PGMOL, Keith Hackett. Uh, Keith, great to see you as always. Um, I couldn't find anything in the laws of the game about how long the grass is allowed to be. Um, Fulham claiming that Barnsley at the weekend they left it a bit long I have to say pitch side it did look a little bit more I don't know uh, tufty than than perhaps you might expect it to be uh, the idea being that they wanted to slow the game down stop Fulham playing their their passing game um, what powers does a referee have if the grass is too long or is deemed to be too long and, and can they do anything about it I think this highlights the fact that this is a very, very rare occurrence. Um, so, uh, and that type of complaint, I mean, I just go back to my days. I can remember, I think I might have mentioned it before, refereeing Newcastle Sunderland one Sunday morning and it, it was a, it was a quagmire. Uh, and, and it was the police that determined that that game went ahead, not, not the referee, Keith Hackett, in that situation. Um, I think we look for fairness generally. Um, in the past, you know, we, we've uh, they've had pitches measured and then recorded in the Premier League. The pitches me- measured before the start of the season, and they're not allowed to alter it because what we saw was with some teams that had poor defenders uh, and they were facing teams that were had quick outfield players. They would narrow the pitch by about two or three yards each side. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that used to happen. I think that I think Silver had. And should have concentrated more and and commented on the penalty kick. That oh, was, he did as well. Don't worry, he was very really angry about right. that as well. <laughs> because, um, uh, you know, I think in terms of grass, what the referee would do is if he's arrived early and he thinks it's too long, he'd make a comment. Uh, and if there was time to cut it, cut it. But in reality, he would report that to the uh, football league authorities, uh, and in that sense, then they take it up. Uh, but hmm. you know, I, th- I think clubs take great pride in the quality of their playing surfaces, and you know, we've got to understand that the the quality of per- playing surfaces now are much better than they were in the past. A lot of investments gone in, you know, soilless type playing surfaces. But you know, you then look at Hillsborough and you look at the problems they've got with theirs. Um, you know, sometimes. There's a bit of a failure, but in the main, yeah, there is actually a wonderful uh, video online actually from from Tifo Football. If you're interested in the science of football pitches these days, mm. I mean, it is a 14 month process now, yes, from beginning to end uh, of of what is happening. It's extraordinary the amount of detail that uh, it goes into. So, uh, yeah. well, we're seeking that out, but um, but it seems like. Uh, Barnsley at the moment, uh, well, they 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 got the uh, the point, and they were very fortunate with a penalty decision, uh, which was not particularly um, 
on replays that convincing. I think Come it's on, fair Mikey, to say. it wasn't one. It wasn't. <laughs> Let's no, not no. pull any punches. And I, and I have to say, and I have to hold my hands up and say, I was blindsided by it. I was the wrong side. I thought, well, there's probably a reason the referee's given that. And it turned out there wasn't. Um, so uh, my, my apologies as well, because I was also deceived uh, in that instance. Um, Chris, getting in touch, actually, before we get into the weekend's action, just on something that we talked about in depth last week about in terms of refereeing and how long it takes to uh, go from starting to the top echelons of the game as a referee. And Chris saying, why on earth does it still take 12 years to, to get to the top? Uh, why are ex-pros, as in first-class cricket, not fast-tracked seems beyond me um so just on that keith how how much i mean we've spoken a little bit about ex-pros and and the difficulties of of getting them into refereeing but from start to end of it being you know a dozen years from starting to getting to the top is there anything about that process that can be accelerated or do you need that level of experience and to have got so many matches under your belt to be in a position where you can make the best decisions? I think this is a balancing act. Uh, And and I'd make the point that I was quoting my own experience of of 12 years at grassroots level. That grassroots level, by the way, is tiered. So I started off in local parks. Then the next step up was to become a linesman on or assistant referee on the Yorkshire League, which was, you know, an amateur league at that particular time, and then eventually onto the Northern Premier League, which was, you know, new in its concept and professional. And I took 12 years to do that. And some of that was because I started young at 16, being a referee. Michael Oliver is about eight years. Hmm. So a lot depends on how you perform as a referee, how quickly you adapt, and the changing circumstances in your area. Who, who, when you refereed a match, uh, who saw something in you as an individual that made you accelerate your career? I mean, I, I can remember distinctly going to Hillsborough when Mark Clattenburg was refereeing a Sheffield Wednesday reserve game. Uh, and at, at that time, I was an assessor, and I just turned and said to a friend, this referee's got something that is pretty outstanding. And I made that report, uh, then obviously became his boss. And like Howard Webb, I wanted them into the fold as quickly as possible to help their careers, but also to help me. So in that sense, it's how well you perform. You have to have a bit of luck. There are areas where there's some double promotions. Uh, And the reality is that sometimes what you don't want is to be accelerated into a league and you're running around like a headless chicken without the experience of being able to handle players. You know, the higher you go up the ladder, it's not just about refereeing a football match. You begin to look at game management, uh, event management, all the things that come in. A referee, for example, in the Premier League and the Football League that's televised has to kick off absolutely on time. He can't kick off a minute early. If he does and a goal is scored, then somebody out in Asia that's watching this game, when they suddenly switch on, you're welcome to this particular game. Oh, by the way, it's 1-0. You've missed the first goal. Um, that's not on. So it, you have to adapt as you go through the processes uh, and hope that you can 
accelerate quickly. Now on the question of professional players. Obviously, Mike, there, there are players who have earned that much money, they're not interested. And that, that applies to lots of players. Um, but there have been, in the past, professional players that have become good referees. And good on them, because they've had to start at grassroots level, like just like anybody, like you, if you wanted to go and start refereeing, you go out, take an examination, start refereeing in the local parks. That, for me, is an absolute nonsense. I've, I've made that point clear on many occasions to the FA. If someone has played the game for a, a, a number of years, then there ought to be a credit against when and where that player is introduced into the pyramid system that exists across the country. And so um, I was one that tried to break down the barriers. I even suggested that there should be at Bath University uh, a referees academy so that when academies, football academies, had their exit trials, this is when they've told the player before the end of the season, we're not going to retain you next year. Uh, those players then go and play football in exit trials. And coaches from League One to Championship come and look at, say, the Premier League academies, might sign them on. But they don't sign all of them on. So I was saying, look, I think one route here is, can we attract these, these individuals into a university? Can we give them a degree course, sports science or whatever, and either encourage them to be players or referees. And when I say players, because Bath University, under the leadership then of Jed Roddy, Jed was going to the exit trials, signing up those guys who'd been thrown out by the Premier League clubs, taking them into Bath University, putting them on a degree course, but they were playing for Bath City. Mm. And some of those players who played for Bath City then, you know, were late developers and suddenly got back into the professional environment. So, yeah. Yeah, and what well, you mentioned, Loughborough University here as well, actually. Exactly. Because they've just got themselves into the FA Vars uh, semi-finals. And congratulations to to Jamie Clapham and uh, and his team there, because yeah, that's another brilliant. example uh, of, of what can happen. Um, just something you mentioned a little bit earlier, though, about you know, watching Mark Clattenberg and, uh, you know, spotting that he was someone who was clearly going to be, uh, you know, a, a top referee. Um, how much, uh, you know, we talk about football and scouting and, and scouts going around, you know, is there referee scouting, as it were, to, to any kind of degree? Because how do, because we know that reports are written and clubs send back feedback on what referees have done in certain games, but how much of that is independently verified and how much, you know, are referees looked at for, you know, for, for advancement? I think the first thing is that um, in my time, we had assessors at every game. And, and actually, I of, of the sponsorship money that I got initially, we were the first referees to have, be sponsored. Uh, I used that money to ensure that the National League had 100% assessment because the further you go down, if you like, that semi-professional list uh, with experienced assessors, because that's what I used. Assessors would go, and I also had a, a, a close-knit team of coaches, you know, someone like Trevor Simpson, Roger Dilks, Tom Bune, Paul Durkin, uh, and they would go out and if I, if someone in a report, either manager report or ref report said, look, you know, I mean, I, I can remember Sam Allardyce writing to me saying, 
Keith, you found one. And that was his first viewing of Mark Clattenburg. And you knew then that what I was seeing and what my coaching staff were seeing was that here was the potential of a top-class referee. What we had to do was develop him. So the, the filtering process is through marks that are given by clubs and by assessors. And sadly, I think this is where it's, it's been let down at the moment because those professional referees that have been employed at the Premier League, they have invigilators who are people sitting around a desk and watching videos of that performance and not actually having that face-to-face contact mm. post-match and pre-match. And, and, and what do you, yeah, so what, what, what are you missing by not doing that? Um, because, I mean, we can all see as football fans, if you're watching a game on telly and not being there, that you, you miss certain things. But what do you miss about a referee uh, in that environment? Right. Let's take your position at Barnsley, where you might have thought it was a penalty kick, or you probably didn't question it. Hmm. But I'm sat close to you, and I think, that looks an iffy penalty kick. I don't understand, you know, I've not got video replay, so I've got to make a judgment. So what I would do is I would go into the referee's dressing room and, and start to debrief. Part of that debrief would get to that particular decision. I'd say, right, okay, in such and such a minute, um, talk me through your decision to award that penalty kick. Just where were you? What did you see? Did your colleagues come in and input in that decision? Can we discuss it later in the week when you get the video of the game and I've got the video of the game? I'd like to just run it through with you again because I don't think it was a penalty kick. Likewise, I, I think it's a penalty kick and he's not given it, or whatever the outcome, that's the lead in. But it's more than just the analysis of the performance, Mike. You're looking at the movement. You know, often the television doesn't cover the referee who's 15, 20 yards behind play. Doesn't analyse that at all. That's what mm. our job is to do. So... Let me give you an example of that, because there's no better example than the two very controversial decisions given this, this weekend. Yeah, well, we can, we can take them in turn, can't we? We, yeah. we can talk Jacob Murphy and the, and the penalty decision, or, or not to award a penalty, when he appeared to have his shirt pulled by Shalaba uh, in the box. And, well, Robert Sanchez on Liverpool's uh, forward Diaz. Um, yeah, which, whichever one you want to do first. Well, both were totally wrong. Uh, in it, not in awarding the penalty kick in the in the Brighton game, but the sanction not given to the referee, and in the other one, it was a clear pull that that altered the progress of the you know impacted on the progress of the player, and then the pull not being achieved or part achieved, it then pushes him down to the ground. So here you've got two very competent referees in Mike Dean and David Coops. So. The first question is, and we I'm not going to go through it in detail, but I can ask, why didn't the VAR come in on this particular incident? In the same way that a week ago at Everton, with a handball, I asked the same question, why didn't the VAR come in? And I gave, an ex- I gave a reasoning, or what I thought might be a reasoning, because Cavana, who's the VAR, on the Thursday night, had officiated a game out in... Uh, Prague and had not arrived by late until late Friday 
travel into Heathrow, Heathrow to Manchester, Manchester back to London, where Middlesex and Stockley Park is to do that job. So one asked the first of all question on those two decisions. They were clear and obvious errors. Why didn't VAR? So both referee now and VAR are in the doghouse in terms of these decisions. But when I look in the Sanchez in the in the Sanchez case, the Liverpool player who had his head mow, almost mowed down by a goalkeeper, that offence was serious foul play. For a referee of the experience of Mike Dean not to see that is unbelievable. It's it's just, you know, you go, why? When I look at it afterwards, in, in you know, yesterday I had a, another look in detail, without the passion, without any emotion. I knew he was wrong. Why was it wrong? It's pretty evident that part of the body of the actual incident, the coming together of the goalkeeper and the player was obstructed. When I look at David Coote, who had the other game, uh, the Newcastle, the Chelsea Newcastle game, absolutely incorrect decision. When I look at his positioning, he's in he's both, by the way, are in proximity to play, but you've got to see the incident in the round. So, to young referees who, who watch this show and and tune in, what is important is yes. You chase the ball down the channel, you're following play. But there is a point where you might have to give up distance between a challenge in terms of your distance to the ball, if you like, in order to go via left or right because you need a viewing angle. Mm. You're not going to get a side-on view because you can't catch the players up at that pace. But what you can do is move left, out wide or right, out wide, try to get a part of a sideways view. So neither did that. And this is what I said in some of our earlier shows, that VAR develops lazy referees. Both these referees were lazy. And as a result of that, the outcome was incorrect decisions. Penalty kick, correct. But the goalkeeper of Brighton should have been sent off for serious foul play. Penalty it's, kick yeah, not awarded. It's, it's a I massive mean, decision. The 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 shirt pull. Uh, you know, we've seen all sorts of you know familiar incidents, and sometimes they're given, and sometimes they're not in the Premier League. The the challenging of goalkeepers in particular is something I wanted to ask you about because I remember it was at um, it was Burnley against Norwich earlier on this season in the in the Premier League, and uh, Tim Krul comes out and actually punches a Burnley striker basically in the side of the head. Um, obviously, that challenge from Sanchez is is particularly extreme as well. Um, and the cliche is goalkeepers get quote unquote protection from referees. I'm not sure I buy into that so much, but you look at those sorts of challenges and you think, why in those instances when an outfield player would just not get away with either of those things, or at least you would hope not, why are goalkeepers not being punished in the same way? I think through poor officiating and inconsistency. I think you. I think you're right. I think that often uh, there's almost this view: the goalkeeper never commits an offence. But in fact, that's a hundred miles away from reality. Uh, the goalkeeper, you know, we see the goalkeepers coming out with a knee, 
They say it's to protect themselves. In reality, it's far from that, you know. So, so for me, you have to take each one as it comes. I mean, I, I watched at the weekend a team that you follow, and I'll not mention the result, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Casper Smeichel having a moan. Now, you see Leicester more than I do, but I think it's not beyond the the wit of a referee to understand that that's what he's going to get from Casper Spichel, who thinks he's got the captain's armband and therefore he's got a license to question every decision that's made. Um, and you, you look at the penalty kick decision and then you look at the outcome. The player who took the kick was in law. I, I assume that Spichel was trying to argue that he'd stopped and it was a blunt stop and it, you know, um, all aspects of law. But he himself... Is a clever guy. There's I can't no think doubt. of yeah. I mean, I can back you up on this, Keith. I, I cannot think of too many goals that Leicester City have conceded this season that Casper Schmeichel has not complained about in right. some way. Um, it- so yeah, it, it is part of it. And, and also, I, I wonder actually, as a strategy of a player, when referees get wise to that, whether actually you end up blunting your case when you maybe you have a strong argument because referees know you're going to come after them, whatever happens in a game. That's a human being, isn't it? And that's exactly right. I mean, the, the fortunate thing for Smeichel is he might only get that referee two or three times in a season. Um, but there are other referees, hopefully, watching games and, and analysing and looking. Because part of officiating a modern game is to be prepared to to recognise who the players are. You don't have a black book and this nonsense of, well, he's already in the book because of. What you do is... Good referees are ones that are proactive and prevent rather than reactive because that's not the style of refereeing that, that I, I or anybody appreciate. Um, quick question we had, uh, again, this coming in on, on Twitter about goal line technology in the Women's Super League. Again, it feeds back into a discussion we, we've had recently about you know how much uh, you know should be invested in this sort of thing. Uh, Reading won Manchester United four. There's a, a shot that comes in that clearly goes over the line. It is of of Lampard World Cup against Germany levels of over yes. the line. Yeah. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, it, it's not drawn too much attention because seconds later Manchester United put the ball into the net anyway. Um, in, interestingly, this was being played at a ground in in Reading that has goal line technology. Not every ground in the Women's Super League has it um sometimes Leicester play at the King Power Stadium sometimes they play at Burton's Pirelli Stadium for example which doesn't have goal line technology um so I'm just curious about how you feel and this may play into some of the FA Cup discussions we've had about VAR in certain grounds and not others if the technology is available and can be used should we not just use it well yes I mean in my initial reaction is technology and goal line technology is fairly simple in terms of its operation but in reality there's a cost factor uh, it does it just doesn't it isn't like uh, the guy goes and switches the button on um, <laughs> you know um, the 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 system before every game involves someone calibrating it and that's a fairly high up quality technical IT man who goes to the stadium uh, and goes through a, a, a various testing mode. Um, again, it's back to this question of can they afford it? Uh, you know, I think one of the things, Mike, that's happening at the moment is that uh, 
FIFA are experimenting with VAR light. What they're, what they're trying to do is to, say, is to say, look, how can we reduce the costs of the uh, equipment and its operation in order that it then filters down to other countries because there's certain countries that can't afford, uh, you know, VAR and they don't have the personnel to, uh, to operate it. So I think on the horizon, that might be one of the routes in. You've got to remember that uh, VAR at the moment requires a minimum of seven cameras around each goal, uh, a pretty detailed uh, software program and IT equipment within the stadium, and then someone to analyse and produce a report. Well, it's one to uh, to keep an eye on. doesn't look like it's coming to the WSL uh, in the next few weeks anyway. And uh, I guess there will be more decisions like that uh, between now and the end of the season for us to ponder. I wanted to ask you this as well. This is a question that's coming from Loz. And my apologies, uh, Loz, who sent this as a message a few weeks ago and I missed it. So a uh, hands up there. However... I think it's a really interesting one. It doesn't really matter about the, the game itself, the more the consequences of it. Uh, Loss says, I was at the Huddersfield-Sheffield United game. This was a couple of weeks ago. And at halftime, the stadium announcer said something like, well, there was an interesting incident in the Sheffield United six-yard box. I'll let you all have a look at it and make your own minds up, but I'll say no more than that. Uh, Loss goes on to say, I thought clubs weren't allowed to play replays to avoid potentially influencing the referee later in the game. Is this the case? And would a comment like this fall under that restriction? What action would or could a referee take to that? What do you reckon, Keith? Uh, I think this is a very interesting incident. Um, First of all, in clubs where they've got big screens, uh, they're not allowed to transmit incidents that are controversial. Who gets to decide what's controversial, by the way? Because that's my immediate first question. Uh, is it a penalty? Is it not a penalty? You know, uh, this is why, uh, you know, the, the broadcaster has to be very careful what he's doing. Um, you know, sometimes what you will see is they'll they'll replay the goal, which doesn't necessarily, at times, might might cover offside, might not. But that's the way some, some clubs get around it. Uh, in reality, I think it's a waste of time. Because most people in the stands have mobile phones and <laughs> play them on the mobile phones. <laughs> yeah. But th- those are the regulations. The, the regulations were put in place to avoid any uh, s- crowd problems, you know, uh, as against trying to de- determine that the referees got it right or wrong. What Huddersfield have done is outside the remit, I would say, or in, inside the, the the criteria that they're not supposed to do. And therefore, what they did was wrong. Uh, that may well have been reported. If the assessor was sat in the uh, the ground, that's something that he can, in fact, report. Mm. So they're out of order. And, and what's interesting is that sometimes the reasoning behind this, I think, is more towards an act of violent conduct or serious foul play on the field of play that might be a red card offence that's been missed or a red card that has been given that might be a bit dodgy, replaying it. It's all, it's all about uh, crowd 
uh, not not if you like inciting the crowd to create problems. But it's a, it's it's a great incident. It's rare that they do they do actually break it football. Yeah, and, and just actually, I remember the promise uh, early on from from VAR, and this isn't something that seems to have have developed, is that more of the incidents that happened that were then decided by a VAR would be shown if it was clear on the big screens or indeed on an app. I don't know whether this app has ever arrived. I certainly haven't seen it. Um, that you could then obviously watch in the stands. And uh, so maybe that's just been delayed and I, I've, I've missed it, Keith. I've not seen it. Uh, but then I don't watch, uh, other than TV, a huge amount of uh, top-level games. The, the reality is that when we actually look at the VAR process, um, I think that I've mentioned in the past the relationship between referee and VAR. And I think it's, it, it was interesting. If I go back to that Liverpool game, you've got two very experienced referees, Mike Dean and Stuart Atwell. Um, you know, Atwell is now an international referee and he's in the VAR seat. And I just wonder whether he thought, well, Mike's given a penalty kick, so I'm going to support that. I'm, I don't have to look further. And ignores the serious foul play. But when you look at both these incidents we've discussed earlier, you have to ask, how can two senior referees, one in the middle, and I've given a reason that he may not have seen it and why he's not seen it, and why VAR doesn't come in? This is why I like how... Uh, Howard Webb in America is operating this view that, look, if it's dodgy and you think it's a clear and obvious error, get the referee to have a look and he will make his mind up. And unlike mm. in England, where it's automatic that you go with VAR, where I think there's a reluctance with some referees, I think, I think people like Mike Dean rarely visit the screen. I think they just go, if you're telling me it's uh, not a red card or you're telling me whatever, I'm going with it. This is a, this this is why it's lazy referee. It, it's interesting that the, the level of trust, obviously, that has to be involved there as well between those that that relationship. But uh, and also, I guess you could make the argument, and, and and some have that if it is clear and obvious, then you don't need a screen at the side of the pitch. It should be obvious to everybody and anybody watching. Um, I think this is something we'll probably end up coming back to again before the end of the season. I'm sure, I'm sure we will. Uh, but uh, if you do, like Lars and like Chris, want to get in touch with the show, hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is the email address. You can get in touch with us on Twitter as well, at seen underscore them underscore given is where you'll find us there through the week. And we will do our best to respond in the uh, programme uh, to any questions that you have. And once again, Keith, thanks so much for, for being with us. Yes, uh, thank you for listening. As I say every week, if you enjoyed the show, give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you next time. <laughs>